From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Evan Radliff. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Max. Uh, how are you? I'm great. I miss Aaron a little bit, but you know he's on vacation. He's just doing his thing, so he'll be back. I, I do miss him though. Well, who have you got for us this week? This is, uh, you know, you. I love the ones where uh, I don't actually know who you interviewed. That's a classic long form episode. Who have you got this week on the show? I talked to Adam Grant. Adam Grant is a organizational psychologist. He is a many, many times New York Times bestselling author. Some of his books, Give and Take, Originals, Think Again. And he's got a new book out. It's called Hidden Potential. He's also a podcast host. He does podcasts with Ted. One of them is called Rethinking. One of them is called Work Life. I have a uh, disclosure for you, Evan, which is that I worked with Adam uh, a couple years ago when he was just starting out as a podcast host. So we talked about that a tiny bit, uh, but mostly we talked about this work that he does and the writing and how he lands on the ideas for these books and these talks and these op-eds he writes in the New York Times, how he chooses which medium for which idea. Um, And then, you know, I asked him a bunch of personal questions that he didn't really want to answer. Well, he's a a big thinker, and I feel like you're always a good match for a big thinker. (laughs) I have no thoughts, but I will ask you about your feelings. (laughs) Our show is brought to you in partnership with Vox. We thank them for working with us to make this show possible. And now here's Max with Adam Grant. Hey, Adam Grant. Hey, Max Linsky. Thanks for uh, coming on the podcast, man. This is uh, is a real treat. Thanks for teaching me how to podcast. I I feel like (laughs) this conversation is long overdue. It is long overdue. I feel like um, we needed to get some distance from our time when we were sitting in like studio after studio together uh, in order to actually talk on a podcast. You know, you need like you need some distance from that experience. I definitely did. I don't know about you. <laughs> um, I did too. But man, I am so glad to have you here and congrats on the new book. I want to talk to you about it. Uh, I want to talk to you about a bunch of different things. But um, in my prep for talking to you, I encountered this fact about you that I did not know, which is that you failed your freshman writing test in college? I did. New York Times bestseller over and over again, Adam Grant failed a writing test? I didn't just fail. 
I was told that I had to go to remedial writing. <laughs> I mean, we should say that this was at Harvard University, so not like, uh, you know, not a shabby writing test. But what was your concept of yourself as a writer and as a creator when you were 18 years old? I thought I was a great writer. <laughs> I'd always excelled in English. I always got high scores on writing tests. And then Harvard told me I couldn't write. And so my assumption was they had a much higher bar than any other setting I'd been in before. And I just, I, I was a good writer by maybe regular standards, but nowhere near Harvard standards. And now do you think that was right? I think there were things that I was good at um, and there were things that I was terrible at. And I think, I, I don't think it was my best essay I ever wrote under time pressure. Like not Not the best way to assess writing abilities, but that's, that's incredibly self-serving. I think I was awful at structure, awful. And they paid a lot, of, a lot of attention to structure. And I saw things connect in my head that clearly did not translate to readers on the page. And Max, I have to tell you, I still struggle with that today. With structure? Yeah, with structure. It's, it's the hardest thing for me to do as a writer. What do you mean by, by structure? Like uh, connecting the dots or, or what do you think of when you say that? Yeah, so when I'm when I'm writing, whether you know it's it's a book chapter or a draft of a, a podcast or an op-ed or really sometimes even a social media post, um, I'm seeing the connection between the ideas, the studies, the stories in my head, and I, I guess I suffer from the curse of knowledge there, where the, the reader does not know what's in my head, <laughs> but I don't realize it, and so I usually have to give it to somebody else to tell me where the holes are. Has your process, your writing process, has it evolved over all of these books and op-eds and podcasts? Like, where, where did you start and what does it look like now? Yeah, it's changed a lot. I used to, I used to sit down and edit as I wrote. And uh, now I don't. <laughs> I separate those, those two phases uh, by a lot. Um, I think Vonnegut probably captured it best when he said some people are swoopers and others are bashers. And uh, I, I think that the creative process of generating ideas ought to be done in a separate period of time from the, you know, sort of the critical process of refining and sharpening ideas. So, you know, now I, I kind of bang out rough drafts and I try not to edit myself as I go. And what I do is I, I usually put it away for at least three weeks and send it to a few people who are going to criticize and coach who are usually slow readers or busy so that by the time I come back to it, I have a lot of distance from it, but I'm also no longer attached to it. I feel like like some some dumber version of me wrote that. Like, <laughs> that's that's not me anymore. Right, a little less, a little less ego at that point. A lot less. I know that you um, have sort of refined that revision process over the years too, and you've written a lot about having coaches and bringing in different teams to give you feedback on your work. Uh, but you just said something about that group, which is um, that they are busy. And you yourself, I know from having worked with you, very busy person. How do you fit in the writing? Like, how do you find time in your day or week or month or year to do these big, long scale projects? Well, I've tried to become less busy over time to make more space for writing because, one, I love it. And two, it seems to be the most meaningful thing that I do in my job. Um, and it's sort of an input to everything else I care about. I can't publish research without writing. 
I can't create books without writing. I can't podcast without writing. I can't give talks without writing. Um, it, even communicating with students like, requires a lot of writing. So I guess concretely what I do is uh, I try to block out two days a week with nothing on my calendar. And after our kids leave for school, I sit down and start writing and I write until I'm out of ideas or out of material. And then I'll usually go work out and come back to my writing. Does the writing come easily to you now? Depends on what I'm writing about. I think writing for me has always flown when I sit down already knowing what I want to say. When I don't, uh, it's kind of the least pleasant part of my job. <laughs> What's the balance between those things now? Like how often are you sitting down not knowing exactly what you want to do? Probably, probably about a quarter of the time. So I used to get frustrated by that because I felt like I was wasting time. I had a goal to finish a draft or to flesh out an idea. I didn't reach the goal in the window that I had blocked out for it. I failed today. Now I look at that and say, writing time is thinking time. And if I didn't make progress on the idea, it's because it's complicated or I haven't done enough research. And so I use that time to still move forward. It just wasn't the kind of progress I had envisioned. And that definitely helps me sleep at night. I want to talk to you a little bit about perfectionism, but we can get to that in a second. I have one more sort of practical process question, which is like those two days a week, are you militant about protecting them now? Like can anything encroach on those two days? How do you, how do you guard them? Militant's a little strong. Uh, <laughs> my, my, goal is, my goal is to have two days a week that don't have anything on the schedule during the day, but yeah, life, life intervenes. Yeah. So what I try to do is I make up for it. So if, if this week I only get one day, then next week I'm going to try to shuffle or you know clear or move things around. Um, and then I, I try to manage this also at the level of, of the month. So if I know I have a busy month, then you know the next month I'll try to block out a whole week and then toggle back and forth. And I realize I have the luxury of, of having tremendous flexibility around how I manage my time. But I actually think that this is increasingly true for people who do creative and knowledge work. And I really like Paul Graham's idea that we should try to divide our time between maker days and manager days. And so I, I do think that probably many of us, especially in a virtual or hybrid world, could say, okay, I have to have a certain number of meetings with people that I'm interdependent with. Let me try to stack those into two or three days in the week as much as possible. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, not that anyone cares about my own productivity, but I found it really hard to separate those days like that. Like I, I, I always wanted to do it. And then I realized I would just have this like stack of meetings that were totally different asks, you know, it's like totally different parts of my brain they were requiring. And I needed like the first 15 minutes of every meeting just to like recalibrate kind of. I think that's not uncommon. And I, I've wondered if the day level is like, if it's too long for, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I, I've been really intrigued by some of the work on chronotypes. So I'm a morning person. And that means, in general, I do my best analytical work and also my most creative thinking in the morning. So I try to block out mornings for thinking and writing. And then if I have to, even on one of those two days, I'll take a couple of meetings in the afternoon, ideally right after lunch, uh, which is when research suggests that we're most likely to fall into food coma uh, <laughs> and the least likely to get other things done. So we might as well talk to other people and, and try to get re-energized. Um, if you're more of a night owl, you, you actually want to do something similar except flip. Uh, you want to save your analytical and creative work often for the late afternoons, which is when you get a boost in alertness. So part of me is wondering, like, could the world, this is hard across time zones, but 
at least if you're dealing with people who are in the same time zone as you, could we all agree that like 11 to 2 is meeting window and then we're going to protect <laughs> totally. before and after for people to do independent deep work? It's an idealistic notion. I don't know if it really happened in practice, though. Oh, I think it'll never happen, but I still think we should dream. I'm interested in how that same idea relates to the ideas that you are going to sink your time into. Like, how do you choose what the next book topic is going to be? How, how do you find those ideas? And then how do you, how do you decide where you're going to sink your time into? Well, the finding is, is pretty easy because every time you create something, people react and then you discover what people care about. So I've, I think I've written now two books that were sort of inspired by the questions I got on book tour from the last book. Uh, and, you know, some of that comes through podcasts and through other forums that I share ideas in. I especially love when there's a convergence between questions that students ask and questions I hear from people out in the world. Um, like, okay, if multiple generations care about this or if... You know, somebody who's entry level in a job and somebody who's running an organization, if they're grappling with the same question or the same topic, um, that's something I want to dig more into. Also, I get a lot of my ideas from reading. Uh, sometimes it's reading academic journals. Uh, a lot of times it's, you know, it's reading a book and just intensely disagreeing with the author and thinking, wait a minute, somebody, somebody needs to, to represent a more nuanced perspective or, you know, a more comprehensive picture of that idea. I used to take on an idea whenever I got excited about it. And my bar has definitely gone up over time. One, I have a higher bar for excitement, meaning it's not enough to find it interesting today. I have to write it down and then still be interested in it a month from now. And I also have to tell someone about it who's not in my field, knows nothing about organizational psychology, and they have to find it interesting. And that means to me that I'm not going to mind, worst case scenario, getting typecast by it. Uh, because, you know, especially a book follows you around for five or 10 years. Totally. It follows you around and you follow it around. I mean, you got to keep talking about this stuff for years. Yeah. I mean, look, it's it's been over 10 years since Give and Take, my first book came out. And there's still people who pigeonhole me as the nice guy's finished first guy. I'm like, no, clearly you didn't read the book. Number one, it's not about being nice. It's about being helpful. Those are different things. Um, two... I didn't say they finished first. I said sometimes they finished first, sometimes they finished last, and we got to we have to understand how to be an effective giver and not burn out. And yeah, I mean, a decade later, those conversations are still happening to the point where I've seriously thought about writing a sequel called Take and Take, Why Selfish Assholes <laughs> Succeed, um, just to not be typecast. But, you know, I love these ideas, and it is probably still my favorite topic that I've written on. And so I don't mind that it's following me around and that I get to keep revisiting it. I wouldn't feel that way about every topic. So kind of extreme fascination and passion is kind of the first criterion. And then I've added two over time. The second one is, if everyone in the world understood this topic better, would our lives be better? Um, so this is really a question of, like, does this topic matter? Is it going to make a difference? And then the last one is, do I have something new to say about it? From the evidence I've gathered and that my field has accumulated and from my personal experience, can I bring a fresh perspective? And I guess the sweet spot for me is that Venn diagram of it's interesting to me, it's important to the world, and I can advance the conversation with something that hasn't been said. Were you able to develop that Venn diagram through trial and error? Like, have you scrapped lots of projects and ideas? No, there was, there was only error. 
no trial. <laughs> no trial, just error. Yeah, it felt like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I took on a bunch of projects that I, I was like, I don't, like, I don't find this interesting today, but why did I want to do this last year? Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I stopped doing that, but I still found myself writing about things and people are like, yeah, why did you take that on of all the things you could have tackled? Like, Uh-oh, that's something people don't care about. Missed that mark. And then, yeah, I think I guess I've I've tr- I've tested a lot of ideas in op eds, and discovered that sometimes people read and are like, yeah, I already knew that, or you know, why don't you check out these nine books that have already tackled that topic? I'm like, oh, this was new to psychology, but maybe it's been said by philosophers, maybe it's been captured elsewhere, and so yeah, I've definitely refined that with time. Can I push a little bit on how no. audience? <laughs> Come on, man. You don't need I, permission, Max. You're the host. You can do whatever you want. Uh, to a point, to a point. Here's the thing I want to push on is um, I've talked to many, many people over the years on this show, and I would say the vast, vast majority of them, when asked, like, w- how do they pursue ideas, the answer is about their own curiosity, that they're trying to, to answer some question for themselves. And the way that you've been talking about it for the last couple minutes is so audience driven it's so about what means something to other people what works for other people is is that because you want to have the biggest possible impact is it because the audience is the most important thing like how did you arrive in that place do you think oh that's interesting well look i think curiosity is selfish if you're not careful you can end up doing a lot of navel gazing and a lot of me search mm-hmm. and then <laughs> me search that yeah that's uh i guess that's a that's a psyche term <laughs> um, for uh, for exactly what it sounds like. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I think the, the thing I worry about is that you know people just take for granted that what they're fascinated by is also going to be intriguing to others and useful to others, and it's not. Um, so look, if I if I were just writing for myself, I would be journaling. There's no reason to publish it. Do you do that? I mean, do you do creative work that is not for an audience? No, definitely not. Like, why, why would I create something that has no possibility of benefiting someone else? I don't know. Maybe to make the rest of your work better. But why can't I do that through creating something that I share? I don't know. I'm, that's why I'm asking. I mean, I think... Yeah, like- I, don't, I, don't, I don't expect to share everything I create. But if I, if I am going to engage in something creatively, I want there to be a possibility that it's worth sharing. Otherwise, I feel like um, I'm not using my time well, and I'm not taking my whatever knowledge and skills I have and trying to make them beneficial to other people. I think, um, you know, it's funny, I, uh, Jim Barry and I published a paper on this years ago where we found that uh, when people were really intrinsically motivated, they weren't as creative as we expected. Um, so there was a longstanding belief that if you're curious and if you're passionate uh, and you want to explore something for, for its own sake, that that should lead to you know, lots of cognitive flexibility and positive emotion and, and sort of open up eureka moments. But the evidence was really mixed. And a lot of times, intrinsic motivation was not fueling creativity. Hmm. And we found that that this was because if you only focus on your own interest, you tend to develop novel ideas, but not necessarily useful ideas. And so for me, the audience is a filter to say which of all the ideas that I find interesting, I don't know which ones to choose. I might have 30 ideas for a book. Um, let me hone in on the four or five that also might be relevant to other people. And I think... Yeah, that's the goal there is to to make a contribution um, and also just not to squander my time.
Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with Wise. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E.com, wise.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think that most popular and most useful are synonymous? No, definitely not. Say more. Like when I hear you talking about the audience that way, right? It's like what I hear you saying is I want this to have as big an impact as possible. And so I guess my question is like to have the biggest impact possible, do you need to reach the most possible people? No, I think, I mean, zero popularity is going to constrain impact. (laughs) If you you reach no one, you're not going to help anyone. That's, That's clear. But as soon as you start to accumulate a critical mass, um, popularity and impact start to diverge. I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus, but I can think of one social scientist in particular who has sold many, many copies of a book that, as far as I can tell, almost no one read. <laughs> that, that's not impact. It's not uh, at all. And we can also think of people, you know, I think about the Kevin Kelly idea of a thousand true fans. Um, who might have a relatively small niche, but their their work really matters to that core defined audience. And you know, you might consider that modest popularity, but very meaningful impact. Um, and if I had to choose, I'd much rather be in the latter camp than the former. Well, you haven't had to choose in a long time, right? I mean, the the work that you're doing has found a pretty large audience in any of the mediums. Do you think on like on some level, do you start to take that for granted at some point, or does it become a necessity to reach that many people? I definitely don't want to take it for granted. I, I take it as a responsibility. And that, that's part of why I don't want to just do creative projects for the sake of them, is I feel like I've been really fortunate to have an audience that's interested in what I know. And I owe it to them to create something of value to them. I, I do feel pretty strongly that once you have an audience, um, Ignoring what what's meaningful to them um, is a great way to uh, to f- I guess I mean it's an easy way to fail to add value and isn't that part of why we do what we do? Well, it seems like it's a really big part of why you do what you do. 
to add value. I mean, it's. I hope it's the. I hope it's the driving reason behind why I write. Um, I I really like John. John Green said to me years ago that he thinks of a book as a gift he's making to the reader, hmm. and I love that framing because it it reminded me that like part of part of gift giving is pouring some of yourself into what you've chosen for the other person, but also making it with them in mind. Like a gift is not about you. It's about what you're offering to the other person. And I think gift giving could be a, a frame that more creators could adopt. Uh, because I, I guess, Max, one of, the, one of the things that a lot of people struggle with, and I think you're, you're really getting at the heart of this tension, is on the one hand, I don't want to be overly focused on appeasing my audience. Uh, I don't want to be writing for social approval because I'll, I'll end up being you know, kind of bland and saying something obvious um, that you know, that everyone will agree with. I don't want to be overly concerned about attention because then I'll end up, you know, sort of double clicking too many times on, on controversy or being provocative. Uh, but I don't want to ignore the audience either um, because then I might miss the mark on, you know, on what matters to other people. And so I think the idea of giving a gift is a really healthy way to balance. Yes, this is something I choose to give, but ultimately it's not for me. It's for readers. Do you think of these uh, gifts you've been giving as like um, being linear? Like, do they build on each other in a in a way that's like a straight line or even like a kind of crooked line, but they connect, or or do they feel distinct to you? Both. I mean, I think I think they build in the sense that I I think the most helpful review I've ever read of one of my books was when Lee Buchanan wrote that. Uh, my my books, I think this was after the second one, she wrote that my books were like a Trojan horse, that the promise was better results, but the payoff was a better you. And I loved that. I learned so much from that because I realized, yeah, I'm always smuggling something about character in a, a book about how to succeed at something. So we go from generosity to success um, in give and take to, you know, in think again, humility as a a skill for growth and opening other people's minds to a whole series of character skills and hidden potential. And I think that's that's probably the connective tissue across them. But I also see them as as distinct in various ways. I think, you know, I wrote Give and Take really to think about the the misconceptions people have about getting ahead at work. And then realize just because my my primary area of research is organizational psychology doesn't mean I can only write about the workplace. I can read studies. Um, I can hopefully translate them as accurately as a journalist would, if not more accurately, given my my training and my expertise. And so I think over time, the I guess my my lens has broadened to think about people in all walks of life. And gosh, if I could rewrite Give and Take right now, it would be a very different book. Wow, how would it be different? Well, I'd, there'd be a chapter. It'd on... be called Take and Take. <laughs> no, no, that that would not happen. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's tempting. Well, there would be a chapter on um, on parenting and how to raise kids to be generous givers as opposed to selfish takers. There'd be a chapter on marriage and relationships and w- what it looks like to have a healthy balance of giving, which is different from, you know, sort of the matching of I'll do something for you if you do something for me. There would be a cross-cultural chapter on what it looks like to be a giver in different parts of the world. There'd be a chapter on gender differences and why women get burdened with with a lot of the the helping um, not just the housework at home, but also what's called office housework, and how we can solve those problems. Uh, it would it would just be much wider in scope. 
I mean, in, in some ways, probably the first 20 or 30 op-eds and blogs I wrote were, here's something I missed or got wrong in give and take, and let me, let me try to correct the record or advance the conversation. If it feels to you like character is the through line of this work, do you have a sense of where your interest in character comes from? Like why that's the thing that you return to again and again? Self-insight is hard. I feel, I feel like that's one of the biggest lessons of psychology is it's really easy to go psychodynamic and say, I had this defining moment when I was four, but what about the one that happened when I was three that I didn't remember? And what access do I have to, you know, how much of this is nature versus nurture? Like in, in, my, in my read of behavioral genetics, we dramatically underestimate how important nature effects are. And a lot of the things we blame on our parents are actually because of the genes they transmitted, not necessarily the, the way they raised us. But those, those caveats aside, uh, I'll spare you any more weasel words about <laughs> not explaining my own curiosity. I, I think it's always bothered me, as long as I can remember, it's bothered me that people think they have to choose between succeeding and being a good person. Mm -hmm. And I've always seen that as a false dichotomy. And I think first in my research and, you know, just in my own daily behavior, and then, you know, increasingly in my writing, I, I wanted to explore, well, how, how do you avoid those trade-offs? And is it possible to, to not have to choose? Do you feel like you figured it out? No, no. I mean, I, I, have, I feel like I, I have a lot of, look, if you, if you ask me, like, how can I, you know, achieve success without sacrificing my character? I could give you a long list of evidence-informed answers. But I feel like each answer has raised lots of new questions, and that's part of the fun of being a social scientist. I do think it's, it's hard to imagine that my curiosity wasn't fueled in part by growing up in a world where a lot of highly successful people were not great role models. And a lot of great role models were invisible. And then at some point I realized, well, maybe we're just, we're elevating the- Assholes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's not that being an asshole makes you more likely to succeed. It definitely makes you a more visible success. Yeah, that's interesting. It's not necessarily the key to success, but if you are successful at an asshole, you're better at talking about it. Yeah, and you're, you're better at getting the attention and the credit. And you're also a more interesting story. You've spent a lot of time both in like research for the work, but just in your life with uh, very successful people. Uh, I've like seen you in some of these rooms talking to very successful people. My experience in those rooms was that they talked to you differently than uh, they talked to many other people. I mean, my sense was that people trusted you and you're probably going to dodge this one, but I wonder if you have a theory as to why. I'm not going to dodge it. I, I want to learn from it. Did you see me do anything that you hadn't seen before or that surprised you that you thought was effective? Well, I, I got I got a lot of notes from you on things I needed to do better. Come and on, I've, man. I've Give me a break. worked hard on a lot, of those, <laughs> a lot of those improvements. Give me a break. I had to say something. That was my job. The uh... No, I wanted those. And I, if I remember correctly, I think you, you might have even tried to give me a compliment early on, and I rejected it. I was like, no, tell me, tell me how I can not suck at this. I remember that too. But if, but I don't want to fail to learn from things that I, you know, happen to instinctively do well or or something that worked in a in a relationship that I had built. Well, I might be reaching a little bit, but I think it's connected to to that character idea. So I, I find it uh, elucidating, but not surprising that if you have a sort of central thing that you've been trying to think about, it is 
how can you be successful without being an asshole? That 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 feels like um, that makes sense to me as sort of like if there is an operating question of your work, that's the question. And and so I think in those rooms in which you're talking to people who are certainly by every sort of like American capitalistic measure successful or creative measure successful, um, the fact that that's the question that you're interested in, maybe the answer is that it makes them feel like they don't have to act like an asshole. Or, or maybe even to go further. I, I, you know, it's funny that you say that. I remember, I remember sitting down with, uh, let's just say a very prominent um, leader. And I guess he just picked up give and take. And he said, I'm a little nervous about this conversation. Do you think I'm a taker? I actually wonder if sometimes people feel like they're going to get called out or held accountable if they don't live up to my principles. I'm like, by the way, I'm not the arbiter. I just study this. I write about it. I'm muddling through it the, the way the rest of us are. I get these judgments wrong all the time. Well, I do think that's part of it. I, mean, I do think that, that people feel an urge to get your approval. But it was also, at least in my experience, that because you had written about it so much, because you had thought about it so much, um, you weren't all that impressed by like the resume. Yeah, I, 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 there was a time when, when I put powerful people on pedestals. Like growing up, I idolized some of my favorite athletes. And then, you know, either one of them lets you down or, you know, you meet one. I remember, I actually remember going, I remember going to basketball camp as an eighth grader. Um, and my hero was the host. And, he didn't show up the entire week. Mm -hmm. Claimed that he had a sprained ankle on the last day when he came in and then did a 360 dunk. <laughs> and, you know, that, that happened a few times. And you just start to realize these people are all human. You know, they might be extraordinary at something, but they're very ordinary on most dimensions. And I do think it's sometimes disarming for, for people who are used to being treated as special or important to be just treated like another person. I also think, you know, as we talk about this, I think one of the things I've learned to be more explicit about over time is when I sit down to talk to someone, it's because I think they, they can teach me something. You know, I think a lot of people go into interviews saying, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be a Pollyanna. Um, you know, I've got to be, I've got to be a skeptic or I've got to be a little bit critical or I have to challenge the person. And what I've tried to do is, is say to people, listen, like, I wanted to sit down with you because I think you're an interesting person to learn from. And I have things I'm curious about. And I think the audience will be intrigued by this too. Um, but part of the way I learn from you is not to nod and smile. It's you know sometimes to, to debate, to dance, to duke it out. And I think I expect you to challenge me back. And I think if we do that, people are not only going to gain insights from the creative tension and friction that we create, they're also going to learn from the way that we can spar without disliking each other. Mm -hmm. So let's disagree without being too disagreeable. And I've seen, as I have that conversation with people, it really, it does put them at ease a little bit. And I'm now realizing I need to have that conversation more often and more explicitly because I do it in particular moments when I think the person might be you know, a little guarded or might have a reason to hesitate to be open. But there's no reason why I couldn't do it in every conversation. Do you think you're still getting better at that? 
like trying to learn all the time is that something you can keep improving at or at some point does it start falling off a little bit i hope i hope i can keep improving at it i think the day i stop improving is the day i should stop doing it i think one of the one of the the real challenges of of trying to master any skill is that the better you get the slower you tend to improve Mm -hmm. Uh, so diminishing returns are real and you know, at some point that can get frustrating and it can be, you're used to making these quantum leaps and then you're working really hard for these tiny incremental improvements. And it, at some point you stop trying to improve because they feel too small that you can't even see them anymore. I think the way that I've, I've tried to get around this is to focus on a really specific thing that I want to get better at. So, you know, in, in podcasting, a, an easy example is I, I felt like I was botching my lightning rounds over and over and over again. And the, I mean, the, it's, it's the dumbest thing to screw up because like, we can edit the silence out. And so you could give people time even to come up with a, you know, it's sort of a witty, quick answer. And I kept, I kept setting them up and like, I was not setting people up for success. And so instead of saying, okay, I want to get better at podcasting this week, good luck with that. I said, in my next three interviews, I want to figure out why my lightning round is broken. I'm going to work on that specific thing. Yeah, that specific thing. Um, so I made a, I basically made a list of the successful lightning rounds that I'd done and the failed lightning rounds that I'd done, and I compared them. And it turns out, in the good ones, I asked much simpler questions. My, my lightning questions were not lightning in a lot of cases. And also, I set the ground rules for them, saying, look, I'm really looking for a one-word or one-sentence answer. And then I kind of jokingly cut people off. I was like, yep, you failed the lightning round if, if you didn't you know, if you didn't do it. And in the ones that didn't work, it was usually with somebody that I didn't know well, that I was you know, wanting to make a good impression with. And so I, I shoved some of my meaty questions into the lightning round and then wasn't comfortable interrupting them. I'm like, okay, I can fix this. And now I've gotten better at the lightning round. Like that, that to me is what improvement looks like as you get more practice with a skill. That little story reminds me of a topic that's in the, the new book a lot, which is uh, perfectionism. We read a lot in the new book about the perils of perfectionism. And I was wondering if you could just start, like, walk me through the downsides of, of perfectionism. All right. So what, what happens to perfectionists? Uh, they discover at some point that there's no such thing as perfect, but they still really want to be flawless and create an image that they're they're mistake-free, that they, they aced it. And so they end up not taking risks and trying new things because they're probably going to fail. So they only do the things they're good at. That stunts their growth. Number two, they often lose the forest and the trees because they're so obsessed with fixing the small problems they see. They often miss out on the larger questions they should be asking. And then uh, they end up ruminating a lot. And that becomes a recipe for burnout. And I've I'm I'm still in recovery as a perfectionist, let's be clear. But I remind myself almost every day, the point of reviewing past mistakes is not to shame your past self, it's to educate your future self. So instead of beating myself up for what, what went wrong yesterday, the question I want to ask is, what did I learn from that that I can do better tomorrow? So lightning round is an easy example. I botched, I botched one on stage. And, you know, I was kind of kicking myself for that. And I felt better about it when I said, okay, what are, what are the couple changes I'm going to make to tomorrow's lightning round that are going to prevent this from happening again? 
that idea that you can become a recovering perfectionist, do you think that that has impacted those choices that you make, like the Venn diagram, the, the ideas that you're picking, like, um, going into recovery, does that have an impact on what you're willing to take on or what you're willing to try? It's a really good question. I've never thought about it before. Off the top of my head, I think it does. I think it's it's made me more willing to go out on a limb. There was a part of me that felt like, you know, if I didn't get something right in a in a previous project, the next project had to correct it. And now I feel like the next project has to grow because of what I learned from the mistakes of the previous one, but it doesn't have to directly resolve the problems that are still lingering in the previous one. Like it, it still it still bothers me that Original is my second book doesn't have a stronger, sharper framework to organize all the ideas. And I, I feel like I overcorrected from give and take where I didn't want to be the form like the formulaic guy of like there are givers, takers, and matchers, and now there are going to be three categories again in originals. And I wanted to to write the book based on a question rather than a, a framework and a thesis. And I think I pushed that too far and didn't give readers enough of a hook. Okay, that bothers me. The old version of me would have wanted to rewrite originals uh, and at minimum would have done you know some kind of update to the paperback. The recovering perfectionist says, in all future books, I will make sure there is a framework. And I will be... Uh, willing to accept whatever is not there in the next one when I realize it down the line. Yes, because I mean, there's there's always that thing. Yeah, I, I there's a I think every author dreams of giving the book of doing the book tour before the book comes out, because <laughs> then then you discover all the gaps and all the you know the contradictions and you can you can catch them before the book comes out. But the reality is that's never going to happen in full. That's always why uh, the uh, the act of reading the audiobook has always seemed like such a nightmare to me, because you just have to like sit there and whatever mistakes you wish you could change seems seems brutal. No, so Max, I fixed that this time. How so? All right, so here's what happened. Uh, I refused to read my first few books on audio. It's like we were offered professional voice actors. Why would someone want to listen to my voice when you could hear a pro? Like, let's, let's have some humility here. I, this is not a skill of mine. Then, thanks in part to you, I started podcasting. And when it's time for Think Again to come out, I realized I have a whole audience of people who are used to hearing my voice. And apparently, even though I don't like it, and some of them don't like it, and I've read the comments, uh, some of them expect it. And they want to hear my story and my ideas narrated by me. So I read the audiobook for Think Again, and it was brutal, exactly as you're describing. Uh, and... I thought, okay, never again will I do that. So for Hidden Potential, what I did was I read the audiobook before the final written version was due. And so it was basically my last edit where we were taking notes on things I wanted to change to the text as I recorded it out loud. Oh, man, that is, a, that is legitimate practical advice for the long-form podcast. Well, here's the, here's the thing. I mean, you know, Dan, Dan Pink told me years ago that his his most critical edit of every book he writes is his wife, Jessica reads it out loud to him. And wow, let's, let's just pause to recognize what a glutton for punishment. <laughs> both of them are uh, they're I mean, they're both, yeah, extreme gluttons for punishment clearly, but I think we all know that you hear things differently when you read them out loud, as opposed to when you read them in your head. So if that's a different kind of edit, maybe not a better edit, but it'll catch things that you miss 
when you read visually, why, why would you not incorporate that into your editing process? Of course you should. But I have to put a disclaimer on it, which, which is that means you have to finish writing the book early because <laughs> right. you have to leave yourself time to record the audiobook and then still edit. You got to respect your two writing days a week. All right. Now that we have a, a very practical piece of advice, I have one more existential question for you. And then I know you got to go, which is also about advice, which is there is a line in the book, really a whole section about this idea, which is that when most times that we are giving advice to other people, we're really just giving ourselves advice to. Uh, and that made so much sense to me, but it also made me wonder about this work of yours in its totality, the arc of it, like if maybe there's a fourth circle in that Venn diagram of how you pick ideas, that is the thing that you are trying to work on yourself, the advice you're trying to give yourself to. Does that make any sense to you? It does. Yeah. How do I need to grow? I think could be the fourth circle. What do I want to improve on? Not just what am I interested in? I like that because Right now, it's out of balance. We've got one circle about what I'm intrigued by, and then two that are about what's useful and novel for other people. So yeah, if I can add a fourth circle there, um, is this is writing this book going to help me work something out? Well, you you pop up in the book so much, Adam, and it's always just made me wonder like how much of this work that you're trying to do to find these answers around character and how to be successful and be a decent person are questions that you're trying to navigate for yourself. Well, that's, I mean, that's audience advice. <laughs> that's, that's, that's readers saying, stop writing yourself out of these books. Tell your own story. Integrate your own experience. You don't always have to use the evidence as a crutch. And me trying to listen to that and learn from that. And uh, I'll push back on them a little bit and say, the evidence is not a crutch. It's how I know the knowledge is valid. And then I'll look for stories to bring it to life. But there's no reason why some of those stories can't be mine, granted. Good point. Uh, I learned. Uh, yes, I think hidden potential in particular is, I think one of the one of the points that I internalized only as I made it for other people was stop judging your potential by your starting abilities. I think for years I've avoided trying things that I wasn't good at when I started because I thought I'm, I'm not a natural at that and therefore my ceiling isn't that high. Forgetting, of course, that potential is really a matter of how far I could travel. And you know, I think when, when you need to be convinced of something, there is no better way to persuade yourself than to try to persuade others. Hmm. Well, maybe, you know, you just uh, need to give journaling another shot, man. I'm not planning on it anytime <laughs> soon, but I'm open to rethinking that. And yeah, I mean, look, the, I think for most people, the advice they give is the advice they need to take. And if we listen to our own advice more often, we'd probably be better off. So uh, feel free to play that back to me and, and drill it into me and, and maybe I'll take it to heart. Sounds right to me, man. Adam, thank you so much for doing this, dude. This was fun. Wait, before we wrap. Yeah. How can I be a better guest? I've never been interviewed by you before. How could you be a better guest? My only goal in these interviews is to get people to think out loud a little bit. And you're a hard person to get to think out loud because... Uh, you've been talking about this stuff so much that you really know what you think and what you want to say. Um, and so you're saying be less of a human jukebox. Yeah. Be less of a human jukebox, but that's, but that's, it's a dance, man. I don't think that's like on you. I think, um, you know, maybe it took a second to get you thinking out loud. Uh, but that's as much on me as on you. 
No, you shouldn't take responsibility for my my comments and my warm up. Yeah, that's interesting. I I always I always worry. I, I love thinking out loud in like in random conversations. Mm-hmm. I always worry when I'm recording a podcast that I could have said something more succinct, or more practical, or more evidence based, or more clear. And so sometimes you're right. I I kind of lean on things that I've already thought through. And I love the idea of doing more thinking out loud because it's podcasting is the one medium where we can actually do it. You, yeah. You get killed if you think out loud in an op-ed. Uh, I've, I've made that mistake a couple of times and gotten near crucified for it. Um, I don't want to do any thinking out loud in a book. It's, it's way too finished of a product. I, I feel like I owe more to readers. Podcasts, like, that's what this is made for. I need to do more of this. That's what it's for. Hey, man, it was, um, it was really nice thinking out loud with you. Same. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Seth Kelly. Thanks to him. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who handled the show notes. Thanks to everyone at Vox, with whom we make the show. And thanks so much to Adam Grant. His new book is called Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.